it's time for school days. Hope for moms and dads of school-aged kids. I tell parents, you're like a training wheel on a bike. Your job isn't to make the bike move. Your job is to keep the bike upright. Those of us who are the true educators, we really want to be given the opportunity to educate the whole child. Sometimes we make decisions with our kids on how we think our kids are going to feel in the first 10 minutes versus thinking about 10 months or 10 years. Oftentimes, as parents, I think we want to protect our kids, but I think one of the greatest gifts we can give them is allowing them to experience that person. Yeah. Here are your hosts. David and Danita Bailey. Well, good evening and welcome to School Days Help for Moms and Dads of School Age Kids. I'm Danita Bailey. And I'm David Bailey. Critical race theory, or CRT as it's called, has become a hot button issue and a concern for many parents of K through 12 students in the United States. Six states, Idaho, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Iowa and New Hampshire have passed laws and nearly 20 additional states have introduced or plan to introduce similar legislation to regulate how race is discussed in the classroom. On today's show, we will ask our guests to define CRT, talk about its origin, and discuss what the nation's students are being taught in schools about race and our country's history with racism. So I had never even heard about CRT until about three months ago, and now you can't not hear about it. Yeah, you know, I was uh, having a discussion with a friend of mine on Facebook about something, and he said, well, what do you think about CRT? And I said, I don't really have a comment on it because I don't know (laughs) enough about it yet. Um, And the irony of it is, so many of you know, I went to University of Pittsburgh and I was an undergrad uh, double economics and business major. But some of you may not know that I was actually I had a minor in African-American studies. And. I was never taught CRT, even in my African-American studies courses. (laughs) And so, you know, within the past few months, it's just it's blown up uh, the topic. And so there's a lot of different opinions, a lot of different posts out there um and it has become a very very touchy situation um and being an educator myself uh you know these things direct I mean, impact me directly uh and many of my peers but also the parents and families that are you know that have kids in schools as well so um it, it, it was time to do this episode. Yeah. And I mean, so much information is out there. There's 13.8 million results when you search for critical race theory. And, you know, some of it is just plain wrong. I'm I just I hate to say it, but some of it is just plain wrong. And, you know, you and I, we really do our due diligence to understand a topic. And I really feel like I've studied for a critical race theory's final uh, critical race theory final this month. And uh, just gotten as much information as we can to be knowledgeable to do this. But um, our show is really all about topics that impact your child's education. And uh, we do not consider ourselves the experts. David has been teaching for 13 years now, and I founded and run an educational foundation. But we're just parents, and we really just want the best for our kids when it comes to their education. So in light of that, we've invited experts to educate and inform our audience and us. And uh, we're really blessed to have an amazing lineup today. And just a quick note, uh, we've done a few episodes about race that I want to refer to our audience. Um, They can be found on our website, schooldazedshow.com, or on any podcast platform. So look for uh, Racism, Justice, and Riots, also Injustice and Education Equality, 
and valuing differences. Those are some good ones to go back and check out. But before we go any further, let me just say it does take a village. If you hear a great parenting tip or nugget of advice, share it with your parent friends. Facebook it, Instagram it, tweet it, link it in and add the hashtag school days show or hashtag I am school days. And remember, sharing is caring. Hit that share button and send this episode to some friends. Uh, and last, we also want you to be a part of the show. So if you're listening to us live on Facebook and we have several people already here, glad to glad to have you all here. Feel free to put questions in the chat box and we'll do our very best to get to them. So without further ado, let's introduce our guests. We have Dr. Bradley W. Davis. He is an associate professor and K-12 professional leadership ed-D program lead in the Department of Education Leadership and Policy Studies at my alma mater, the University of Houston. Go Cougs. Welcome, Dr. Davis. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Also, Dr. Asia Martinez is an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of North Texas, where she conducts research on and teaches a range of courses concerning the rhetorics of race and ethnicity. She is the author of a book called Counter Story, Counter Story The Rhetoric and Writing of Critical Race Theory. So welcome, Dr. Martinez. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. We also have Dr. Jaretha Jordan. She's executive director of curriculum and instruction at Irving ISD and my former boss. She hired me into Mansfield Independent School District, and uh, I learned a lot from her and her leadership and uh, just great that she's doing great things now. So, Dr. Jordan, we are so happy you are here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. We also have Dr. Jean Baptiste, who owns Jean Baptiste Consulting, which is a practice that focuses on supporting the visualization and realization of building and sustaining diverse, inclusive, and equitable independent school communities. So, Dr. Baptiste, we are so glad you're here today as well, and we're looking forward to your insight. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be zooming in with you all from Fort Lee, New Jersey. Yes. All right. And last but not least, we have Dr. Vida Robertson is the Associate Professor of English and serves as the Director of the Center for Critical Race Studies at the University of Houston downtown, where he teaches a wide range of critical race theory and African-American literature courses at the University of Houston downtown. So welcome, Dr. Robertson. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. All right, well, let's get started. Can somebody tell us what is critical race theory in simple terms? What is it? <laughs> Don't be shy. Well, I guess I'll take I'll take a uh, a stab at it. <laughs> uh, forgive the analogy. <laughs> I'll take a go at it. Um, <laughs> he cracked uh, himself for, up. <laughs> uh, for our yeah. <laughs> for our listeners, uh, forgive if it seems jargony kind of language, but critical race theory at its most basic level is a theoretical attempt. It's a, it's a, 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 a framework of analysis that's based on the premise that race is not a natural category. It's not a biological feature of what it means to be a human being. And so if race is not a biological category or then that is to say, if God didn't create it or Mother Nature construct it, then race must be a sociological tool that helps us organize our society for um, uh, 
to achieve the objectives uh, that we set out. And, and thus, this tool is implemented um, to prioritize and implement the social structures, the systems, and the procedures um, that we believe are most important in our society. Um, and so that's critical race theory at its, at its most basic attempt. It's a, it's a sociological tool that helps us understand that race is, that people are raced, they don't have a race. So race is a verb, it's not a noun. Okay, and what does that have to do, what, what does CRT have to do with systematic racism? So I'll add that among several origins in the 80s, some black uh, academics, some legal scholars at Harvard um, developed this idea of critical race theory through which uh, to look at systemic racism from a legal standpoint. And so um, it goes hand in glove with the study of and the understanding of the phenomenon of, of systemic racism. Okay, and many people think that racism only exists from person to person. So like, for example, if I go into a store and the store associate watches after me thinking that I'm going to steal something, racism person to person, you're talking about systemic racism. So what are some examples of what systemic racism is? Um, so one of the examples that I use when I'm teaching this to my students is I say, okay, what CRT provides is, is a way to look at things that we thought we were familiar with. So one of the things that applies to the students I teach, which are first year college students, is the admissions process. So it's like a policy driven thing about how to get into college, how to apply and everything that comes before that. So everything you did in K through 12, but definitely high school in particular. And you would think that that is a uh, you know, just not biased. You either did the work to get into certain schools or you didn't. But some of these systems, if you look at them, one in particular is the Michigan point system that was from University of Michigan. It shows on a hundred point scale, different boxes within which to make points as an individual applicant. But some of those boxes have nothing to do with the individual and everything to do with where they live, what school they had access to, and how they were able to navigate that through usually their parents and their opportunities. And so one of the boxes that is the most offensive to my students, but a good example, is the one that is about school quality and uh, no school difficulty. And it's about how many AP or IB courses were offered at the school that they attended. And some schools offer four or less classes and some schools offer mm. 12 or more. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter if you're a student who took all four of those classes or who took none of those 12 classes, just by virtue of going to the school with four or less or the school 12 or more, that determines what kind of points you'll get on your application. And so I use that as my example for students who I'm saying, who made that choice for you? Was that choice? Was that equal opportunity? Was that something that the individual had anything to do with? No, that's a systemic process that gets evaluated. And unfortunately, that evaluation still goes along the lines of things like race and class. So if I might add to uh, Dr. Martinez's brilliant answer, so what now help? So now we are left, we are, we're at a moment where we recognize that at the formation of our nation, at, as the consideration of our body politic and body social, we are here and we have individuals that have been labeled as Latino and others are African-American, others are Caucasian and others are Asian, not necessarily because they have different colors, 
all of these people could be the exact same hue. But because, as uh, my brother just previously mentioned, because we have a legal system who designated that those peoples are different and therefore their difference will allow them different access to power, mm -hmm. different access to resources, different access to opportunities. Those opportunities to live in school districts that allow you to have AP classes, right, was designated by race. Banks wouldn't give loans to certain designated people because they were a particular racial designation. Some peoples were never even left off, allowed to leave their native lands because as a nation, we designated that they were Native American and therefore there was a place outside of uh, our ubiquitous American society where they needed to live and therefore they had no access to said schools. Mm -hmm. So now critical race theory allows us to embrace the idea that very well-meaning people Right in a nation who believes itself to be egalitarian or or equal equally minded is now functionally right uh, allowing certain individuals to be successful and disadvantaging other individuals simply because they live in a body that has been legally designated as black legally designated as Latino legally designated as Native or Caucasian. Now race ends up being a mechanism for determining success. But I go back to, again, the original understanding and use of it was for legal scholars to understand right. how race and racism impacts legal systems. Mm -hmm. And that gets into whether it's healthcare or housing or the criminal justice system um, that was the origin of critical race theory. It is not, um, you know, something that is taught in K-12 education. Yes, racism, yes, race um, are, are, are part of history courses and civics and, um, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but, but critical race theory as a discipline, quite frankly, was something that I was not introduced to until I went to get my doctorate, <laughs> University of Pennsylvania in 2009. And my doctorate's not in critical race theory. It's in educational organizational leadership and development. And so it is in, in academic circles that critical race theory has, has grown and has thrived, but not in K-12 education. So tell us why did critical race theory come about? Who developed this theory and why did they develop this theory? So this is a really, I think, special question in relation to teachers and students because the person given the most credit for originating it is uh, Professor Derek Bell from Harvard Law School. And in the 70s, uh, post-civil rights, and he was very involved, you know, he worked under Thurgood Marshall for the NAACP. So he had this long activist history in his legal um, stance, but then became this law professor, one of uh, uh, the only two African-American men at the time when he was hired, um, he was realizing that there was no centralization of looking at race and the lens of race when it comes to law and policy 
for his students. And so he was thinking in relation to my students, how do I do this? So he wrote a textbook. <laughs> and so, and that's a textbook still in play. The other thing he did though, is he developed something called counter story. And that's the thing that I've studied because that's the methodology, the claimed methodology of counter story. Methodology sounds like a big, you know, academic work. What it means is the way about which we do this work and the way about which uh, Derek Bell and others have chosen to do the work is through storytelling, through narrative, through weaving story and teaching and learning by story. And what he realized with these high ranking elite Harvard students is that they did not have access points to things like the constitution, for instance, which is so much in play right now. So what did he do? He developed characters and a story and dialogue and setting to discuss something like that as a central text to help them see these racial tenets that he wanted them to see, but through the kind of discussion that characters could have about it. He crafted a character, an alter ego, if you will, named Geneva Crenshaw, a black woman, who he sent back in time to address the Constitutional Congress and mm -hmm. talk to them about what their decisions were and what those decisions did for black folks in the future in the time she was existing. So stuff like that, like that is, I think some of the brilliance and beauty that I think parents, if they understood that aspect of critical race theory would get very excited about because it provides access points to very, um, even for us as parents, hard to access documents like the constitution. So, so basically what you're saying is he, he took high, high uh, academic content, high, you know, high conversation, that is, you know, maybe comfortable at the higher education level and brought it down to the shelf of and just um, anyone who can pick it up and read it so they can get a better and broader context in ways and a language that is accessible to, to people. Through narrative. Be, yeah. Yeah, Derek Bell's uh, two, I think, most well-known uh, public, you know, facing books are And We Are Not Saved and Faces at the Bottom of the Well. Those are New York Times bestsellers because of their accessibility. Mm. Anyone can pick them up, read them and gain something. His most famous piece, The Space Traders, is in one of those books. But when he comments on why he did it, he did it for students, for learners, you know, people to learn about these concepts in a way that helped distance themselves from being um upset or taking it personally and try to suspend uh, suspend that judgment to just learn what the story very much like parables right fables are trying to do for us mm -hmm. tradition okay so one of the talking points i've seen a lot of lately is that crt is and i'm a math person so for me that turns into an equal sign crt is crt is equal to marxism um can someone talk about the why why is there uh, discussions of, about that being a correlation to marxism um and is it or is it not uh i have a few thoughts on that so marxism uh you know that would require a whole nother show to to break down but i would say a simple version of that would be that it's a it's a critique of the ills of capitalism and um, for Marxists, neo-Marxist folks that hold that ideology dear, the primary um, organizing frame for society is, is the economy and is class. And um, that's different, whereas, and I'm not going to say that critical race theory is a unified theory where all tenants are agreed upon. It's not. It's a contested living theory. But for most folks that adhere to CRT, they would say sort of the primary social determinant is race. 
not class. So mm. there's a fundamental difference at the very core of these theories. So uh, this contention that CRT is somehow built upon um, Marxism is, uh, I'd say a red herring would probably be fair. Um, but that's not to say that you know folks can't borrow certain viewpoints from more than one theory to arrive at a particular understanding of society or elements of society. Uh, but I'll stop there. That's just, a, I would say fundamentally, uh, what they see as the primary organizing frame of society is, is just different. I, I think I would completely agree with my brother. He eloquently and powerfully um, helped us understand that fundamentally Marxism is interested in a classist analysis of uh, of our body politic and the economic structure that maintains it. Um, I think often criticisms of critical race theory as Marxism is number one, grounded in a kind of uh, um, communist, um, you know, a, com a summarial communist kind of dismissal of, of anything that might be communist and what might be Marxist. That's, that's problematic with our, just our American kind of mythology right, that we are democratic nations and all communists are therefore bad. And so that usually is how it's usually framed. But if we're being theoretically honest, philosophically honest, Marx does a beautiful job of saying that you imagine, we imagine in our idealistic Western world that we enter as individuals. And Marx argues that's not true. You entered as a class that because of the power dynamics and the way in which your, your society is maintained, you entered as a group. And much of the experiences that you uh, participate in are defined by your group designation. And so in, in a similar way, critical race theory is making that larger kind of theoretical argument that we don't enter in as individuals. I'm not Vida. I am actually a member of a legal, you know, legally um, defined group of individuals who were presented certain access to power, privilege, and opportunity, and whose life trajectory is going to be shaped by those or lack of uh, those opportunities. And so, in that sense, uh, critical race theory on a larger philosophical sense, would align itself with a larger macro analysis. But as my brother beautifully said, it is not Marxism um, at, at its base. Uh, yeah. I, oh, go ahead. I don't know who that is. Oh, I'll just, there yeah, to continue that thread, I think it's important when to thread, uh, continue because it is such a word invoked as a scare tactic right. and, uh, and effectively so. But um if I can pinpoint anything in the history of critical race theory that might have been, you know, the aha that someone you know, took as a kernel and ran with to prove that, you know, CRT folks are Marxists is uh, Richard Delgado, another foundational critical race theorist, uh, in his telling of the origins, he said in 1989, there was a gathering at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and at that moment, there was a certain identification of some of the scholars as legal Marxists. He does say that at one point, but he's saying it exactly in the way that Dr. Robertson just said, you know, it was more about um, having that framework of how to look at systemic things in this particular sense, racism at the legal 
aspect, but the critique isn't of systems of class in this case, the critique is of American liberalism in many cases of looking at what those founding fathers instituted as our liberal agenda, if you will, or our liberal legacy history foundation and looking back at that and saying, well, do those ideals really hold up? In the legal system in the way that bodies are you know policed and incarcerated and all those sorts of things and so i think that's the major distinction and it is very much used as a scare tactic for people to veer away from it if i could very quickly add to that i would say that the the number of you know scholarly products whether they're books or journal articles or whatever of folks within the marxian tradition um trying to more or less disprove critical race theory like there's just tons of that work where you know marxists say no they try to dismiss all the various tenets of crt so mm-hmm. there's there's actually quite a tradition of friction between the two theories interesting and i am going to ask the next what the tenets of crt but i do i did do a lot of digging into this marxism claim because i heard it so much it was like the first thing that rolled off of people's tums when i asked them what crt was and i did watch a video an interview of kimberly crenshaw who's one of the founders of crt and she said that she and her colleagues considered themselves critical theorists which actually draws from some of the the European philosophers who um, were Marxists in origin. Um, But she said that we were influenced by them. So does anybody want to kind of speak to that? Nobody. This is Vida Robertson again. (laughs) Um, Yes, that would be very much the case. Um, uh, as my colleagues beautifully said, uh, the brilliance of CRT is that um, Dr. Crenshaw and Dr. Bell, Dr. Delgado, Dr. Stefanich, uh, Dr. Masada, that these are individuals coming from Asian American, African American, from male and, and female perspectives, coming from different spaces in our body politic and they are asking themselves, how exactly is this notion of race? And then of course, Dr. Crenshaw is gonna ask us in gender and sexuality and disability and religion, how are all of these categories uh, informing uh, the way in which we understand ourselves and that we live in America? And so um, I, I, celebrate with my students that the the founding, the work of critical race theory, as my brother beautifully said, it's ongoing, but it's also beautifully eclectic. I mean, there are brothers and sisters doing work on uh, critical whiteness. What does it mean, right? White is a construct. You only got to be white because you made somebody else black, right? These two things came into existence together. They weren't made by God. Nature didn't create those palettes or those people but they are political designations who emerge in concert with one another, right? Um, And so now all of us are stuck asking ourselves, what does it mean to be be black and to be a woman and to be um, heterosexual and to be disabled? How exactly are those systems, practices, and institutions of my society informing my reality? Sure, and that's called intersectionality, correct? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
Okay, so as as quickly and as simply as we can, can we um, explain what the tenets are of CRT? Because that's another one that seems to get very confused and muddled. Anybody? I mean, you're definitely not going to see the tenants represented uh, well on criticalrace.org. So we'll see that much. <laughs> that's not where it's at. Uh, uh, because some of these critical race theorists aren't even cited in terms of the work that they've done to construct these. But uh, I recently did this for my own book project and was able to come up with, you know, eight central ones that I think are widely agreed on. And so the first is starting with that notion that race is permanent. Racism is central. All right, this is not a fleeting concept. This is not something that is an aberration of some sort. This is a central component to our society. The second is challenging those dominant ideologies like liberalism, like aspects of um, whiteness or other sorts of things that are overarching patriarchy, those sorts of ideologies. So challenging those. Um, Derek Bell in particular is credited for something called interest convergence. And so what he says is that if um, people of color get gains, whether it's in policy or other sorts of social ways, um, it's always with the agreement that the white elites get something out of that too. Um, it's not, you know, <laughs> without um, that sort of power and gain as well. Uh, race as social construct is the one about how race is not biological. However, it does have lived reality that society has constructed. And so we have to account for that. We can't ignore that or just colorblind it away. You know, this is something that is a lived reality for people who live in the bodies that we inhabit. Um, intersectionality, as was mentioned, it was uh, theorized in particular by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, but um, twin skin to that is anti-essentialism, that just because you are a person of color that does and are lumped into those umbrella categories does not mean that we are all this homogenous same thing. You know, we have variety within that experience. Um, interdisciplinarity, I think, is really important because that's where all the, you get all of us here today, we're coming from so many different traditions and disciplines and programs of degree, but um, that is what has informed and keeps going critical race theory, the interdisciplinary energy that's being put into it that helped found things like ethnic studies in the 1960s. So we're coming from that tradition, that activist history. Um, centrality of experiential knowledge or the unique voices of color. So centering experiences. So instead of talking about people of color or talking over people of color hmm. or doing research about or over them, you talk to them, you get experience from them, you have them relate on their own terms what is happening to them in these situations that are being reported on. Um, and then the last thing that I think is really important is that commitment to social justice because a lot of those tenets can exist, but without that commitment to social justice, you know, they're not always critical race theory. And so that one is, I think, a pretty important one, almost as important as that centrality or permanence of race and racism. All right. Um, there are several misconceptions, like we've, we've said many times before, about CRT. Um, and there's a lot of misinformation available. Why and how did it become so confused from the theory that the creators developed? Well, that, that's a recent, this is Gene Batiste, that's a recent phenomenon that, um, you know, is, is, a, is a reactionary movement um, that's, that's gone on since, jo since George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the third reckoning of race in this country, um, grabbing at straws and grabbing at uh, concepts that can be um, misinterpreted, maligned, um, and used as a weapon to whitewash um, race and racism in this country. 
um, to get to that myth. I love what John Amici, uh, the British uh, leadership expert, talks about the myth of innocence and fairness. And so it's this combination of white fragility and white supremacy that are grabbing at anything, any concept that's out there that has legitimacy and weaponizing it and turning it political. Um, and, and that's how critical race theory, anti-racism, cultural competency, all these things that have you know, deep important roots in K-12 education have been used and misused um, by parents, by trustees, by um, schools, and by politicians um, at the local, state, and national level. And I mean, there, there's Christopher Rufo. Have we all heard of him? Because he's been pretty vocal, pretty transparent about Very. his strategy. He says he's a self-proclaimed journalist and, and brawler. He calls himself, he's been interviewed happily by many different, you know, very uh, reputable outlets. And he, uh, there are tweets, he has made clear his plan. The, the quoted tweet I have here in front of me from March 15th of this year is he said, we have successfully frozen their brand, critical mm -hmm. race theory into that. the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category there it is i mean he's telling us what he's doing and so any wondering how this is happening we have a legal strategist who is actively doing this campaigning if you will uh what his agenda is i don't want to guess that but you know it, it's there it's being laid bare for any of us who are paying attention to that guy in particular we have a couple of questions coming in from facebook um First question is, what is the best way to explain this to somebody who's completely opposed to it? What are they afraid of? And then her follow-up question is, why is everyone up in arms? Because they will now be taught that this will now be taught in schools. What exactly does this mean? That's a lot of questions I'm throwing at you. Shouldn't these concepts already be covered in school? So the best question, the first question is, how do you talk to somebody um, who's completely opposed to this? Um, this is Vida Robertson again. Um, the best approach for uh, inviting a cordial conversation about critical race theory would be um, would be to encourage uh, the other interlocutor to engage in a recognition that our American ideals, right? There was a moment when our founding fathers, as Dr. Martinez pointed out, our founding fathers were crafting this particular document. And in that document, they made clear certain philosophical ideas that were unprecedented in the world. That all of us, they said men, and they actually meant that, but that's another conversation, <laughs> that, all, <laughs> that all men were created equal and they were endowed by that creator with certain things that were unseparatable from them, right? That was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That that original congregation of men, now that we recognize it, our sisters would not be invited into this experiment into the 1920s. So that men literally only meant men. So also there were people outside uh, building the nation's roads, constructing the nation's economy, those people were clearly not men. There were people whose lands that we were presiding on in order to hold this Continental Congress. 
they clearly were not men. There were peoples who guided us in our Western expansion who were already speaking Spanish in all of the corners of our nation. Those people equally were not men. So now we're stuck with the realistic, uh, the realization that our nation, contrary to our mythology, was not mm. created for all men. And the nation that was created from that document was not for the purpose of promoting the life, liberty, and happiness of all of those women who were left out, all of those natives whose land was taken, all of those Africans who were already a part of the population, all of those Latinos who informed our reality. Those peoples were not incorporated in the men. So now it is our job, now that we're much smarter, much more sophisticated nation, our job is to figure out how do we get our nation to live up to that ideal? We cannot fix that which we cannot see. And therefore, critical race theory is a beautiful lens, right? A nuanced lens that allows us to see things that were present before invisible to us so that we can be things that we have, ne uh, have never, uh, never been. As a higher critical analysis in higher education, not for K-12 education. I've been involved in education for 40 years. And although I want to say I started when I was four, uh, I, I didn't. Um, but uh, whether it's, you know, the nine years I spent in public school or, you know, the, the, the years, 31 years that I've spent in independent schools at the regional, state, and national level, critical race theory has not been taught. We have taught uh, we have taught and had experiences around social justice and around race and around um, 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 sexism and xenophobia and 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 anti-Semitism um, and and how those have impacted the you know American experience. And we also talk about belonging and we also talk about and um, uh, uh, cultural competence and we talk about social emotional learning. Um, which gets at all of these things that have roots in understanding identity. And that's the bottom line to this whole argument is how is identity factored into the K-12 educational experience? And it permeates all the way through, I would say through pre-K through 12. And so that's what the focus should be on and how we deal with our current reality, not the mythology of white supremacy or, or white fragility, that's now being masked by attacking critical race theory, which frankly is not a thrust of K-12 education. Well, let's let's talk about that too, because uh, Dr. Batiste, you work in uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And a lot of people think that's quote, code, code term for critical race theory. And so can you tell us what the difference between DEIB, SEL, which is social, so, social emotional learning and CRT is? Or just tell us what those two things are. <laughs> so the paradigm I like to share about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, I, I like to use the pyramid. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, architects will tell you that the pyramid is one of the strongest structures known to humankind because of the very strong base. So I put diversity at the foundational level of my pyramid. It is about the numbers. It is quantifiable. 
It is counting up both visible and invisible forms of, of difference that you have within an organization or in a community. In the middle level is either it's, it's inclusion and belonging. How do you in fact build a sense of community around the five P's of this work? People, programs, policies, practices, and power. Mm. And then the higher level of that pyramid is equity and justice. And that's when you deal with systemic issues of, of difference and systemic issues in which people um, are advantaged and disadvantaged. Um, social emotional learning um, coming from that whole Howard Gardner multiple intelligence thing and how we can build a sense of, of, um, of moral intelligence and ethical intelligence and empathy is all part of what we call social emotional learning. Um, none of that is part of this higher level, critical, graduate level, legal understanding <laughs> of critical race theory. They're, they're, it's, it's apples and oranges. Well, I mean, I was joking with David and then said, okay, I literally have been studying this for about a month. I am 47 and educated. I'm just now feeling like, I think I understand what CRT ba babe, is. Babe, you're what? 45, sweetheart. What did I say? I was 47? Yeah, means, I have no yeah. idea why I said that. <laughs> but my point is, is that this is uh, not something that you can teach to little Timmy, who's, you know, 12. He would not, never understand it. We barely do as adults. Um, so, and I was going to just piggyback. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was, oh, just, about, I was just about to bring you in. I think it's a great time, Dr. Jordan, for you to come in. You've been listening, and, and uh, um, but wanted to hear your insights um, on the educational school level. Uh, being over all the curriculum and instruction for a, a pretty major district here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, major-sized district. Uh, what what are your insights on everything that's been shared and how it's uh, being worked out um, in your position and with students? Well, I uh, appreciate everything that everyone said earlier, and I'm going to just kind of piggyback from Dr. Batiste. Um, our job in the K through 12 realm is to lay the foundation build the capacity so that when our students grow up, they can contribute to society and they are aware and they have all the tools that they need to feel accepted, to feel like they belong. So in the K through 12 realm, we focus a lot on diversity, equity, inclusion, acceptance, and then SEL. So we want our kids to know we see you, mm -hmm. right? However you are, However you come to us, we see you, we value you, and we will get you whatever you need to elevate up to the next level. That's what's important to us in that K through 12 level. Um, and so preparing our kids to be able to think and do the research that we're all having to do when they get to that age, but it's also um, giving them the tools they need and developing curriculum for them to be great decision makers, right? There's a lot of information out there. I mean, Thank Danita, you said it earlier, you Google critical race theory and so much comes up and our kids are a social media world, right? Everything mm -hmm. that my own personal children know is from TikTok, Snapchat, <laughs> or some type of social media, right? Um, and so it's important for us to be able to embed um, skills with our students to be able to decipher what may be truth and what may not be truth right? What will allow them to be accepted and for them not to be accepted. So from the curriculum and instruction lens, it is so important for every student to have someone that looks like him or her, mm. right? Mm -hmm. In the classrooms and in the building. That is a priority. Um, I think about growing up, 
I don't know where I would be if I didn't have Mrs. Nelson in my sixth grade classroom to tell me that I could be anything and everything I wanted to be. And there was only one Mrs. Nelson that I ever saw, but that's all I needed. And so making sure that our students have people that look like them is important. And also having curriculum that speaks to their culture, that accepts them, that provides them knowledge where they are. So it's not excluding them. I love to read about Hispanic, Hispanic heritage. I'm not Hispanic, but that love can be cultivated through the literature, through our lessons, through our activities. And so looking at our curriculum and instruction, it is important that we are inclusive and we make sure that we embrace our students where they are. So um, there are, I think what you really just described was the um, the purpose of those positions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's a lot of districts because of all that's been going on in our country lately have been hiring diversity and inclusion um, experts. And so a lot of what you just said is kind of their job to make sure that there's diversity of staff, make sure that there's diversity of curriculum and things like that. Exactly, for sure. And you know, it's one of those things, if I can say, it's it, it's a buzzword. It's a buzz phrase for some districts as they're adding those positions, right? Mm-hmm. And for other districts, they're saying, yes, our students need this. And so we're unable to fulfill this need. And so we need to bring someone in. Um, I'm blessed to serve in a district where we don't necessarily have a diversity, equity, and inclusion department, because we all share the same philosophy and tenets. And so we're not developing silos, whereas the curriculum department, it's my job to develop curriculum that's inclusive. No, it's our job because they're our kids. And so we haven't really had as a community um, the questioning of why are we adding this new position and what is their purpose? And now are you excluding other kids? Because every single person in the district in which I serve is responsible for diversity equity and inclusion and whatever job capacity that we offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I add to Dr. Jordan's oh, piece real quick um, that independent schools also do have diversity practitioners and they go by different titles, chief diversity officer, director of diversity and inclusion In higher ed is the same. Corporations have CDOs um, as well. So um, I also want to make sure that we, another buzzwords that uh, buzzword that's being maligned and, and misused um, against our work is indoctrination. And um, what Dr. Jordan has just described by the right, by, I'm not going to be political, sorry, I didn't mean to say by the, by the right, but by those that, that want to attack our work, they'll say we're trying to indoctrinate students, right? Um, we're just, edu- we are educating. Um, and it's the education that has been part of public and private and, 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 and for-profit education um, for, for a long period of time now. So I, I think we need to be careful about how that word indoctrination is being misused. Mm-hmm. So within instruction um, in public schools, I'm not as sure in the private school realm and in the independent school realm, uh, but each state has what they call their standards, right? So there are, there are core standards that are to be taught in the classroom around different topics. I have them in mathematics and the expectation is that throughout the course of the year that we've covered all these different topics. So by the end of the year that they are ready um, for different exams. I know, you know, within, uh, you know, the humanities area, you know, there's standards as well. Um, Different states have different standards based upon what's being taught, of course. Um, So what I want to know is, so if, 
if the standards, if there's already pre-ascribed standards that have been in place for years, how did this uh, discussion of CRT come into the conversation of instruction when there's already standards, there's already standards and teachers we're, we're upheld to go for those are our marching orders. Now how we get there may be different. Uh, but as far as critical race theory as a curriculum, how I'm, I'm trying to understand, you know, just me and for me, just as an educator, how, how did that come to be? Uh, the historic tie-in that I see just from being someone who comes from Arizona is the ban on ethnic studies that happened in 2010. Uh, that was, you know, state-sponsored legislation that legally banned the teaching of Mexican-American history and literatures and was in effect until 2017. And what I learned from that and from tying that into the history, especially that interdisciplinary tenet of critical race theory is that ethnic studies threat is part of what I think is the fear tactic used within curriculum settings of, well, okay, if we're gonna teach westward expansion, let's say, right, what is the story? Because it all boils down for me, at least back to narrative, what is the story that is being promoted in that particular piece of curriculum. And what uh, I myself learned and what uh, Danita, I spoke with you about earlier, what brought me into critical race in particular is knowing that what I learned in those curriculum settings as a young person uh, left out parts of the story that I knew from my own family's oral histories of what our part was as Mexican-Americans working alongside Chinese <laughs> migrant workers who were building the railroad, right? Where were those stories? I knew them. Mm. My grandfather told me, but they weren't in our books. They weren't being taught by the teachers. And so there was a real demand, at least in Tucson, Arizona, where I grew up in the early 2000s from teachers and students to incorporate those types of uh, stories into the curriculum and it was uh, fascinating the effectiveness of it, you know, because students were becoming invested in their educations in different ways. They were doing well on other sorts of state standards that had nothing to do with literature and social studies. Um, and then the state legislature banned it because they deemed it anti-American and a threat to the American government and homeland security and all these crazy things that they dragged out as part of what that meant in the curriculum. And so I guess going back to what Dr. Robertson was saying, we have these stories about how our country was founded, what our country's state of being is now. And it's a matter of whether or not we want those other stories to be added to the curriculum. This is not a request to detract from, replace, supplant anything that's already existing. It's only additive in the sense of broadening the narrative, making it richer and doing again what one of the CRT tenants calls for, also centralizing those experiences of people of color who know their stories and can contribute them in those ways. So let me ask, since we're talking about curriculum, there has been a lot of legislation recently passed regarding how social studies curriculum will be taught in the fall. Uh, here in Texas, HB 3979 was passed. So what I'd like to know is how that's going to impact social studies curriculum in the fall. And yeah, I'll start there. <laughs> So for us, I think David said this well, we have our standards, we have our teaks that we are expected to teach, right? Um, that is our first and number one obligation to our students. Next, we are to teach them and celebrate diversity, 
right? That is also important. Um, Dr. Martinez, you said this. I was blessed to grow up with my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my mother telling me about all the different things that occurred. But our kids now may not have that generation to um, educate them. So who fills in that gap? We started with, it takes a village for sure. And so, yes, we will follow our teaks and we will follow our standards, but it's also in the K through 12 realm, our responsibility to celebrate diversity, Mm -hmm. but also expose and provide awareness and acceptance throughout that. And so it's a twofold curriculum for us. We will teach our teaks, we will teach our standards, but we will also um, teach diversity and acceptance. And that will be built into our curriculum. So I think, What's happening now is that we're at a crossroads. We're at a crossroads of how the narrative of our history mm-hmm. is being communicated to students, you know, locally, statewide, and nationally. Um, how do we balance the great history? You know, this is a great country to live in, and, and you know, I'm blessed to be here. And I tell you know, my students all the time is you have every opportunity in the world to you know, do whatever you want to do um, and do great things. At the same time, um, as we learn about our history, um, that some aspects of history are not being shared. And so how do we balance sharing the truth? Because we don't want to not share the truth because I was just telling with my students this morning in, in my uh, uh, summer uh, institute that I'm teaching that the truth of history is not always pretty. It's not all it's not all unicorns and ice cream and cake. Um, that would be nice to say. Um, and that would be a narrow framework in which to look at the scope of history. Um, how do we balance sharing about some of the atrocities that have happened and and they're real, they're not made up and not conjured without causing divisiveness um, within the classrooms? Um, but also bringing, you know, a, a balanced approach so that people know, wow, I didn't know about that. Um, Ooh, that, that, that wasn't good. Um, without students and people feeling, you know, isolated or feel like, like there's now a division, but it, but objectively sharing the truth of what's happened in our, in our history. Sure. Cause Dr. Vita, uh, doc, Dr. Robertson, um, mentioned the some of the founding documents of our nation and something that is not um that many people don't realize is that there are some clauses in the constitution that actually um caused or stated that the slave trade was going to continue for another 20 years and then there was a fugitive fugitive slave clause because right now a lot of people are like no the constitution the constitution the founding documents we were you know we're we we're they're trying to make sure that their their children are indoctrinated against america but to your point there are a lot of uh there's a lot of history that has to be reckoned with yeah i think the question of how to have these conversations and be real about our history and be real about our present in the classroom, that's really difficult. So as a, a, you know, a faculty member who's charged with the responsibility of preparing the next generation of school leaders, we take very seriously uh, the need to give folks the, the tools that they, that are required to have those conversations. And, you know, not every teacher, not every principal preparation program does that. Mm -hmm. And it's not just uh, 
the onus isn't completely on preparation programs. You know, districts have roles as well with their professional development of of their faculty and staff because, you know, whether the approach is, hey, we're going to collectively in this classroom, we're going to enter into this particular set of agreements before we embark on this discussion. You know, if a simple tool like that or something more complex, you know, folks need to be equipped to do that because it is difficult. And I have concerns about how House Bill 3979 impacts that. Um, and, you know, there's a subsection and I'm just reading straight from the bill. It says a teacher may not be compelled to discuss a particular current event or widely debated and currently controversial controversial issue of public policy or social affairs. And what's tied onto that is says a teacher who does choose to just engage in these topics, they need to strive to explore the topic from diverse and contending perspectives without giving deference to any one perspective. So it raises a couple of questions. Can I elect not to engage in discussions that are just, it's patently obvious that we have to, you know, like the wake of George Floyd's killing. How can we not talk about that mm -hmm. in the classroom? And then when it comes to giving deference to different perspectives, what if some perspectives on their face are, you know, interlaced with absurdity and it's just not room for taking those opinions seriously? And then who who is the arbiter of, of whether or not we're being equal with these things? So, um, I understand some of the underlying spirit here, but I, I, I certainly have some concerns. But my short answer to your very important question is how do how do we do this is it's messy and it's difficult work. And I think it's something we'll always be grappling with and in, in trying to improve upon. Sure. Well, in particular, in public schools, how do you do this while at the same time you have stringent accountability measures in place that you right. have to fulfill? Um, it, it just seems like it's going to be you know, a near impossible task to do that and uh, and, the, and the accountability you have in place. Um, I would like to know, and many other parents would like to know, are we going to be missing important parts of, um, of our history because of this bill? I know that here in Texas, Senate Bill 3 has come um, to kind of give more um, explanation as to what, what we need to do with House Bill 3979. And um, it looks on the surface, at least, at least from what I, um, from what I read that some things like the Chicano movement, women's suffrage, the Martin, Martin Luther King's I have a dream speech are going to be eliminated. So and several people have posted about that, and they're up in arms. So I just want to see, are we going to be missing some of those important things by some of this new legislation? You're on. You're on mute, Dr. Batiste. I'm just. I'm just looking at the at the other people that are zooming in. Everyone's oh. nodding yes. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> I'm just voicing what we're all saying. Oh, okay. So yes, they are going to be removing some of these very important things. That's the intent. Yeah, and it's by design. You know. So. Uh, and that's the risk, right? That is the risk and the consequence within support for this or lack of resistance against these sorts of initiatives. Mm -hmm. this is it's the whitewashing. The whitewashing of our history. Yeah. Um, that begs the question. And we are, we're out of time. I wanted to get into some other things like, I won't even say what I wanted to get into, but... <laughs> 
we'll uh, uh, we'll leave those for maybe another time. But um, this begs the question: What do we as parents do about proposed legislation? I feel like this CRT legislation came as a surprise. We didn't know what it was. What are the best ways to stay informed about potential and proposed legislation that and how can we best make our voices heard? Speak up, vote, pay attention to what the legislators are are proposing and how they're voting. And, um, you know, for those that are in independent schools or private schools, um, you have, you know, direct access to the board and to the head of school. To, to voice your concerns about these stringent ways in which critical race theory, which is not happening in K-12 education, but how other things that are happening um, are being uh, maligned. And uh, you know, whether you're public or private school, you know, use your right to vote and pay attention to what these legislators are proposing and vote them out of office next time they're up for election or re-election. I would, I would equally uh, support my brother's claim. It is it is really important that we are well informed as a citizenry. This entire experiment of self governance, not simply uh, in our educational system, but on our national political level, infers that we are well informed. And so, I would encourage parents to be well informed. Recognize number one, as Dr. Baptiste wonderfully said, critical race theory is not being taught anywhere in your elementary, middle, or high schools. It is not happening. That is a mischaracterization. I'll be a little more direct. They are lying. You are being (laughs) lied to. That's just a fact. It's not even debatable. It's a simple fact. And then number two, of course, uh, the question becomes, why are we being lied to, Mm. right? That's the question. We have better things to do with our lives. So what is the goal of this mischaracterization? What is the aim of removing these pieces of our curricula? Where exactly is it moving us? Again, as a critical race theorist, as a critically minded parent, you always embrace the idea that as Aristotle would argue, this everything we do is teleological. It is moving toward its completion. It is moving toward its end. And education is uh, one of those mechanisms. So what is, what is our education, the education of our children moving us toward? Dr. Kendi would say, is it making us more racist or non-racist or are we becoming anti-racist? Are we moving toward the very American ideals that we laid out in our founding documents, living up to our greatest aspirations? For everyone. All of us. All of us. I, I love that, Dr. Robertson. I would also say, uh, for me, it's a three R or three I's, right? So be informed. Dr. Batiste said that. Be inquisitive. Ask questions. When you don't know, don't assume. Ask, right? And then be involved. There's no way as a parent better way than seeing it in the school and being active and involved um, with your children's campuses. So I would just say, be informed. Be inquisitive be involved. And I'm going to kind of put y'all's feet to the fire here <clears throat> again, because you guys are all in this. You're, you're going to know about legislation and things that are popping up, but I'm regular Joe Blow mom or Jane Blow mom. <laughs> and I 
am finding about finding out about stuff from um, articles that say you can't teach racism in school. And by then, so much has happened that I can't I, I, I don't have a voice at that point. It's it's you know, everything has already happened. So, again, how do I find out? when you know earlier on in the process when things are being proposed or or you know how do you guys get your information i think for me i've looked at people like this you know christopher rufo and who are his associations where does he have influence in different states and what are those constituencies linked to in terms of different sorts of politicians who are here that are going to do copycat legislation from one state to the other to be in line with whatever the political ideologies are that they're trying to represent and so it's it's trendiness really if you would right and so you just watch the trends if you start hearing or sniffing this out in other states that tend to trend with your state so i'd say in this case florida arizona those type of states then you can guess um, that there's something that's going to be coming down the line with our legislators pretty soon because they try to stay in step and in line with each other and so those are kind of the trends that i've been following in the sense of oh okay if it happened in that state it's probably going to happen here mm. or it happened in that city that's within texas right it's probably going to come here pretty soon so that's mostly how I've been, you know, paying attention. Mm -hmm. For parents in particular, you must be careful of some of these organizations that purport to be about fairness, but they are about the misinformation and the malignment and, and uh, a malignment of, of, of our work. One is called FAIR. Um, the other is called Parents Defending Education. Mm. And so I think informed parents need to be very careful of these foundations and these spring up organizations that are actually being astroturfed, a term that I learned recently. They're supposedly uh, grassroots organizations that are against critical race theory or anti-racism, but they're actually very deeply funded by well-heeled individuals and organizations to promote this uh, malignment and this uh, this campaign to whitewash um, um, our history. So, you know, as parents are becoming much more informed, be careful of where you're getting your information um, and be careful who you're relying on, but particularly with these spring up parent groups mm -hmm. um, that are helping to with this mythology that's out there. Sure. And I'll also just say that uh, wherever you are, whatever state you're you're in, you can go to your um, capitals website for us in Texas. It's capital.texas.gov. And what you can do is you can follow a bill. So you can put the information in, uh, you know, the, I'm following, you know, House bill or Senate bill, blah, blah. And then it will email you. Uh, whenever there's news about this. So as it moves through the process of becoming a law, then it will it will show you exactly what committee it's in, what's happening, what are they voting, and all of those things. I'd add one more recommendation to all the wonderful ones that have come out. You know, our especially parents, bandwidth to engage in, in politics and the media is very limited. You know, <laughs> there's only so many hours in a day. But I would say there are reliable sources of, of media that when it comes to education, policy and education news are largely fact, facts-based reporters. And some of the biggest examples are local newspapers, Houston Chronicle, Star-Telegram, Dallas Morning News. Even though 
these are under-resourced newsrooms in comparison to the past. They have really wonderful education reporters that really have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in, in our legislatures. Uh, the Texas Tribune, there's plenty of sources out there that um, are very light on opinion and analysis and very heavy on fact-based reporting. And I think that's exactly what um, parents, to the extent they're able to, should be engaging with. All right. Well, um, I want to end with this last comment thought. Um, just kind of thinking through everything we've been talking about today. And, you know, as you know, many of you know that uh, Danita and I um, are people of faith, that we are Christian. And so, you know, um, as Christians, we, we look, you know, through our faith, through the lens of the Bible, which is a historical book. Okay. Um, what I love about the Bible is that it's kind of rated R. It, it's it's ugly. Um, it talks about the great things that have happened. It talks about the highs and the lows, um, the victories, the struggles. Um, it, it, it calls out things that are not correct. Um, it shows people standing up uh, to uh, rules and laws and policies of the time that were that were unjust to, to some people. Uh, sometimes things were not addressed. But the beauty of it is, is that is that the whole story was told. It wasn't just told as a glossed over aspect of 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 humanity. Um, and we see that even in humanity that we have our own flaws and we have our you know, we make mistakes um, and and that it's OK to discuss them so that we can learn from them. Mm. Um, so that we can become better as a society, so we can truly see each other as equals, um, and that no one is better than anybody else, no race, no gender is better or worse than, but that we are all human beings. And because of that, we all are ascribed to have dignity, value, and worth. And if we can look through the lens of society, even when it may not look pretty, that how can we redeem the times by looking at where we are through a correctional lens. Because what I, I've said, and I'm gonna wrap this up here, but I've said to my kids, even today, I said, just because, just because a law is a law doesn't mean that it's just. So we have to reconcile, how do we reconcile what's just with what is legal? And then how do we make our voices heard? And so we want all parents and families to to know and to understand um, and again, this is this episode is not exhausting. This is not an exhaustive episode, but to do your research and do your homework um, and even look look at the other side, look at a different point of view that may not be what you may already have. Because mm -hmm. we all have biases and presuppositions about this topic uh, to some extent. But how do we our goal with this show and every topic that we do is to, is to get to the truth. OK, uh, we're not you know, we don't have all the answers, but we want to help to put some stuff out there. For you to chew about and some may reject it and some may not but at least there's you know we've had some experts on today to share their insights um and we encourage you to not end the conversation here but to continue to do your research and even look on the other side um uh, from, from, from where you're coming from no, no matter what it is so that you can be well informed um and not just bent by a particular narrative that's why I married you. That was very good. Thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> I try. Some, sometimes I say something. Sometimes. I guess, sometimes. That's right. Yeah, at home, it's usually not, though. Well. Yeah. 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 Love okay. you, though. <laughs> Awkward <laughs> ending. All right. <laughs> That's just marriage. That's marriage. That's, I'm just, all right. <laughs>
<laughs> well, unfortunately, we are out of time. Guys, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for giving us so much to think about and to, to look further into. Thank it's you. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. So Noggin Educational Foundation is the premier sponsor of School Day, so we always want to let you guys know what's happening with Noggin. We're currently taking applications for two of our programs. Noggin offers 12 hours of free private tutoring to students through our educational coaching program and through our ARD advocacy program. Parents receive support in securing services and accommodations their kids need at school for learning disabilities or special needs. With the closure of schools and distance learning in 2020, the education gap for low-income students has widened and the one-on-one -on -one intervention we provide is vital so see our website nogginfoundation.org n-o-g-g-i-n or email me at donita d-o-n-e-d-a at nogginfoundation.org for more information also, each summer, Noggin offers a summer math and reading program called SPARK, which stands for Summers Producing Academically Ready Kids. And we serve at-risk students in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. We collect brand new backpacks for our students and for students at local Title I schools in the DFW area through our social media challenge, the hashtag Bought a Backpack Challenge. So join us in taking that challenge through August 12th. Details are on our website at nogginfoundation.org hash, hash, uh, slash bought a backpack. Uh, we'll also put that in uh, on our website. Uh, and if you're not in Dallas, you can check out our Amazon wish, li wish list and make it real easy for you to send that to us. Also, we are working on some great shows for the summer as we are concluding our summertime. Make sure that you subscribe to School Days to help for moms and dads of school-aged kids on any podcast platform so you don't miss any of our new episodes. And also head to our website, schooldazedshow.com, for more information about all that we're doing and the resources mentioned here on School Days. And remember, you don't ever have to miss a show. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Amazon Music, Music, iHeartRadio, Audible, and pretty much anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Noggin Foundation. That's N-O-G-G-I-N. And last but not least, we always want to end the show by saying that David and I are parenting by grace. We depend on God to give us the wisdom and strength we need to raise our kids into flourishing adults. And if you'd like to know more about that, feel free to email us at info at schooldazedshow.com. Have a great week and stay safe. School Dazed is sponsored by Noggin Educational Foundation. At Noggin, we provide free educational resources to students from low-income families and support to their parents like the preceding broadcast. School Days is made possible by the generosity of listeners just like you. Please consider donating to Noggin at Noggin, N-O-G-G-I-N, foundation.org.